Hello and welcome to the podcast for the November 2009 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here, and this month I'm joined by TLN's editor, Helen Frankish. Helen, welcome, and let's start with the benefit study. This is looking at the potential of early treatment for multiple sclerosis. Tell us more about this trial. For most patients who develop MS, the onset of disease is typically a first neurological attack that lasts at least 24 hours, but which patients eventually recover from. And this is known as a clinically isolated syndrome. But not all patients who have a clinically isolated syndrome will go on to develop clinically definite MS and whether these patients should be treated early with MS drugs is controversial and the benefit trial set out to examine whether early treatment of a clinically isolated syndrome with interferon beta 1b could reduce the risk of a second neurological attack and therefore delay the onset of clinically definite MS and also whether early versus delayed treatment could slow the progression of disability and over 450 patients who had clinically isolated syndrome and a minimum of two clinically silent lesions on MRI were randomly assigned to receive treatment with interferon beta-1b or placebo for two years or until diagnosis of MS. And after two years, all patients could then enter an open label phase in which they received interferon beta for up to five years. And previous reports from the benefit study showed that early treatment with interferon beta delayed the onset of clinically definite MS and compared with delayed treatment, early treatment delayed the progression of disability at three years, though this effect was clinically quite small. So Helen, how do these results with longer term follow up? equate or differ from what we found out previously? Well, this paper reports the effect on progression of disability at five years, and the results showed that early versus delayed treatment delayed progression to clinically definite MS by 37%, but the risk of disability progression was not significantly different between the early and delayed treatment groups at five years. So what do these results mean for clinical practice, Helen? As Sean Pittock points out in the comment that's linked to this paper, from the perspective of disability, the results of this study don't support a treat-all early approach, especially given the high costs of these treatments. And he suggests that an individualised approach should be taken in the treatment of patients with clinically isolated syndromes. And the most reasonable approach, in his opinion, is to explain all of the options to patients and allow them to make an informed decision about whether to commit to early treatment or to follow a more watchful clinical and radiological approach. Thanks Helen and I see in this month's issue you have two reviews concerning elderly people in connection with epilepsy and with stroke prevention. Do you want to just quickly summarise these? As you said we have two reviews that focus on neurological conditions in elderly patients which of course will become an even greater problem in the future because of the increase in the number of elderly people worldwide. The review by Martin Brody and colleagues discusses the epidemiology diagnosis and management of epilepsy in later life with a focus on people aged 65 years and older who develop late onset epilepsy rather than patients who have epilepsy throughout their lives. And epilepsy is most likely to develop in later life. It has an incidence of about 8 to 6 per 100,000 in those aged 65 to 69 years of age. And this rises to more than 135 per 100,000 for those who are over 80 years of age, compared with an incidence of about 81 
the 100,000 across all age groups. And diagnosis of epilepsy in elderly patients is particularly difficult because the manifestations of seizures can be different in elderly patients. The differential diagnosis can be tricky. And also patients may have cognitive impairment, which makes it difficult to obtain a clinical history. However, despite the high incidence of epilepsy in older patients, there are only three trials of treatment choice in this age group. And treatment is further complicated by the fact that older patients have a lot of comorbidities and they're also often taking lots of drugs, which increases the potential for drug interactions. And also, Helen, a review concerning stroke prevention, which is clearly relevant to the older population. That's right. The incidence of stroke increases sharply with age. So for each successive decade after age 55 years, the incidence of stroke doubles. And how to deal with the increasing numbers of people with stroke or who are at risk of stroke is a major problem for healthcare providers. However, despite having the greatest risk of stroke, very elderly patients, um, which is defined in this review as people over 80 years of age, are often excluded from trials of stroke prevention and treatment. And therefore, there is a lack of evidence-based treatments in very elderly patients. And just to give you an example, only 42 patients older than 80 years of age have been included in all of the published studies of alteplase for acute ischemic stroke. And the over-80s were specifically excluded from the post-registration studies of alteplase. And the only evidence on the use of alteplase in patients aged 80 years or older comes from observational studies which suggest that these patients might benefit and shouldn't be systematically excluded from treatment. Indeed, Helen, it just does seem so ironical, doesn't it, that uh, older people clearly suffer from these neurological diseases but yet are excluded mm. from the research mm. and the, the, the supposed evidence base that promotes the, the therapy or intervention or whatever it is. You picked this up in the editorial, The Leading Edge, this month. Do you want to just summarise what you're, what you're stating there and what you're calling for? We're pointing out in the editorial that many of the diseases of old age are neurological and so neurological practice is likely to be disproportionately affected by the rapidly increasing numbers of elderly people. However, the failure to include elderly people in clinical trials means that information on the efficacy of treatments must be extrapolated from trials that are done in patients who are often much younger and fitter than those that are seen in real-world clinical practice. And this is a real challenge for physicians. And we suggest in the editorial that a new generation of clinical trials that have more relaxed inclusion and exclusion criteria and also using drug doses and schedules that are tailored to elderly people is needed. And funding agencies and ethics committees should stipulate that there shouldn't be an upper age limit for clinical trials. And also regulatory agencies, we suggest, should ensure that any drug that is likely to be used in elderly patients in real-world clinical practice must be tested in this age group. It's a very important point and a very interesting editorial. I urge everyone listening to read it. Well, many thanks indeed, Helen. Those are some of the highlights from the November 2009 issue of The Lancet Neurology. We'll see you next month.